0: So we are continuing chapter 6 last week. Uh, we started chapter 6. We looked at 10 literary features. And so I didn't want to go from 10 literary features to what we're going to look at today, which is going to be 12 figures of speech and then some various types of parallelism. It just felt like a lot of information, and I like to look at examples in Scripture. So decided to split this chapter up uh, into two weeks. So like I said, last week we looked at 10 literary features. Today we're going to look at 12 figures of speech. And then at the end, we'll look at some various types of parallelism. So we're still in that observation stage. As we're coming to the text, we're trying to be aware of some of the things in Scripture as God seeks to communicate to us, um, just like we would read any, any book by any author. We would seek to understand what they're trying to communicate. So figures of speech, I think I have a slide here. Yeah, and that quote's pretty small on the screen, but I'll read it there. I think, it, is it in your notes, the quote, or did I have to take it out? Okay, I think I took it out because I wanted to keep it to front and back. With a quote from the book about figures of speech, it says, Although figurative language is most often associated with poetry, an observant eye will catch figures of speech throughout all genres and books of the Bible. Did you find any figures of speech in this sentence? What do you think? What was the figure of speech in that first sentence? Did anybody pick it out? It mentioned an, an observant eye. Um, and so that we see that as a figure of speech. Figures of speech are so pervasive in Scripture that readers don't even blink an eye at their use. And then they say, see how difficult it is to avoid ima- imagery and communication? There's another one. We don't blink our eye at it. So a lot of times we can gloss over figures of speech, especially in our culture. We understand what someone's trying to communicate, so we don't even think about it. And then they add, and yet without attentive reading, Many fail to see figurative language for what it is and thereby limit themselves to reading the Bible in black and white rather than in literary color. So um, even as I prayed, I'm thankful that God's word is not just a black and white book. There's color, there's uh, figurative language, uh, and we're going to see some different uh, uses of that this morning and really how it deepens what God, I think, is trying to communicate. Okay, So these are very common not just in Scripture, but uh, these are common figures of speech that other people use uh, in books and things like that, okay? So the first one is simile, okay? Simile. This is A comparative figure of speech in which one thing resembles another through the use of like or as, okay? The use of like or as. So I'm gonna, there's going to be several of these verses that are just a single verse. If you want to turn there, they'll be on the screen. Otherwise, I'm just going to read them. Uh, and so be attentive, and I'm going to ask you, what, what is this verse seeking to communicate through this figure of speech, okay? So again, this is comparative language, comparative figure of speech, like or as is what we're going to see. Psalm 1-4 says, the wicked are not so, but are like the, uh, like the chaff that the wind drives away, okay, or like chaff that the wind drives away. So what is the association there? What's the simile? What's it comparing? The wicked are not so, but are like chaff that the wind drives away. Okay, the wicked are like chaff, and as you say, as we think about what does that mean, chaff is that stuff as you're trying to uh, sift out grain, you would throw it in the air, and the chaff's that stuff that would blow away, right? It's kind of worthless, it's useless, you're separating the seed from the chaff, and so the wicked are like that chaff, there's no foundation, there's no real substance or fruit, okay? So we see that figure of speech communicating this idea, okay? The second one is metaphor. These are probably the two most common for us or two most uh, familiar to us. This is a comparative figure of speech in which resemblance is communi- communicated by a form of the to be verb. Okay? So an example, Psalm 31.3. For you are my rock and my fortress, and for your name's sake you lead me and guide me. So what is the metaphor there? What is being compared there? Right, rock and fortress. So we see this metaphor. Is God literally a rock? Is he literally a fortress? No, it's a figure of speech. What's it seeking to communicate about God, about his nature? He's solid, he's steadfast, he said. Um, he's where we can run to for security, a refuge, a, a fortress, uh, protection. So you see this use of a metaphor seeking to describe, here's who God is. He's our fortress. Uh, He's our rock. We can count on him. We can trust in him, okay? The next one, and I might butcher saying some of these, Hypocatastasis. okay? This is a comparative figure of speech in which resemblance is communicated through direct naming, okay? It's going to be more direct naming, okay? The example is Psalm 22, 12 through 16. So listen carefully, see? uh, If you can notice where uh, there's a figure of speech and it's associating... Uh, a certain image with certain people, okay? Psalm 22, verse 12. Many bulls encompass me. Strong bulls of Bashan surround me. They open wide their mouths at me like a ravening and roaring lion. I am poured out like water and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. has melted within my breast. My strength is dried up like a potsherd, and my tongue sticks to my jaws. You lay me in the dust of death for dogs encompass me. A company of evildoers encircles me. They have pierced my hands and feet. So what is the, uh, I'll, I'll make it a little easier. Um, what, what, is, what are some words or some uh, images that the author is using for the wicked? Did you catch any of them? Okay, they encompass, but what did he say encompasses them? Did you catch it? Bulls. Uh, dogs he mentions, ravening and roaring lions, and then he, he does mention a company of evildoers. So he's using these pictures of bulls, of beasts, of lions, dogs to be descriptive of his enemies coming against him, right? Many bulls encompass me, bulls of Bashan, which was a, very, these were bulls that were very well known in that uh, area. Uh, And so this is the imagery he's trying to associate, you're feeling like, I mean, imagine if you're literally surrounded by bulls, or you're literally surrounded by lions, right, or dogs that aren't your pet dogs, but like, almost like wolves. Um, You can imagine the fear you would experience if you were literally in that position. So he's using that imagery to help us to feel what it's like to be surrounded by these enemies who are seeking to attack him or seeking to kill him. As David writes the psalm, we know it's a reference, of course, to Jesus' crucifixion as well, prophetically. And so we can see that imagery carried over to that as well. Okay? Any questions so far? I don't want to just gloss over if you uh, if you have questions. Just raise your hand if, as we're going through it, okay? The next one is metony- metonymy. Okay, metonymy. The substitution of one word for another, inferring some point of comparison or relationship. Okay? So there's going to be a substitution of one word for another. See if you can catch that substitution in this verse. Proverbs 12, 18. There is one whose rash words are like sword thrusts, but the tongue of the wise brings healing. Did you catch a word that's used in the first phrase that's substituted for another word in the second? A uh, little, little differently. The, the Yeah, let me read it again. There is one whose rash words are like sword thrusts, but the tongue of the wise brings healing. What were you saying? Uh, not quite, I don't think. Not rash. A little more basic. So you got one tongue, right? The first one's just words, right? one who's rash words, and then in the next phrase it says the tongue, right? Which, when we're, when we're referencing the tongue, we're referencing someone's words. So it's just a way of replacing... Substituting words with tongue, yes. Yeah, it's describing there's one whose rash words are like a sword thrust. So in some ways that might be um, a simile, something like that, where it's comparing those ideas. And a lot of times we'll see verses where, you know, as we've talked about before, there's not just one clear-cut answer. There's multiple, even Psalm 22 that we referenced, there's multiple uh, figures of speech or literary features in there. And so we're just observing these uh, as we go through. So, yeah, it's that replacement of words with the tongue uh, to express what's being communicated there. The next one is synecdoche. Okay? This is the substitution of a part for the whole. A substitution of a part for a whole. So here's where you're going to see a substitution from one part of the verse to another. Um, and, and you're going to see... Um, like, like, I, like it says, it's, you're going to see the substitution is a part of a whole. And I'll, I'll explain it if it, it's not clear. Uh, Proverbs 1, 15 to 16. My son, do not walk in the way with them. Hold back your foot from their paths. Anybody catch it? Again, this is kind of a, I wouldn't say complicated, but it's maybe not as easily noticeable. Yes, there you go. You got it, Bob. So when he says, hold back your foot from their paths, well, as long as my foot doesn't go, it's okay for the rest of my body. No, it's, it's substituting your walk, right? My son, do not walk in the way. Keep your foot back. It's a part of your whole body. It's a part of your walk. And so it's used as a figure of speech to explain, yeah, this is keeping your foot back is a way of saying, don't walk, don't go that way, right? So the author seeking to communicate just in poetic language don't go the path of the wicked okay all right these will get a little easier here personification okay this is ascribing human characteristics to inanimate objects or animals okay ascribing human characteristics to inanimate objects or animals so isaiah fifty-five twelve. see uh this is pretty pretty easy you'll get this and really the whole verse is just personification for you shall go out in joy and be led forth in peace the mountains and the hills before you shall break forth into singing, and all the trees of the field shall clap their hands. So what's being personified there? Mountains, hills, trees. Do mountains actually sing? Not unless Julie Andrews is up there singing The Hills Are Alive with the sound of music, but anyway. Um, yeah, they're they're singing, the trees are clapping their hands. It's a poetic way of communicating um, just this joy that they're going to ha- go be led forth in, okay? The next one is anthropomorphism, okay? This is very similar, but this is ascribing human characteristics to God, ascribing human characteristics to God, anthro-man, right, and then morphism changing, so we're giving human characteristics to God. Psalm 8.3, so see if you catch it here, what, what is being ascribed to God, which human characteristics? Uh, Psalm 8.3, when I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you've set in place. And it goes on, what is man that you are mindful of him, right? But what is, the, uh, what is the human characteristic given to God in that verse? Fingers, right? When I look at the heavens, the work of your fingers, right? Does God literally have fingers? Well, in the sense of Jesus being God and human flesh and having a body, yes. But when we think about that imagery, It's not literal, it's more talking about the work of his hands, the work of what he's done, even saying the work of his hands is a way of anthropomorphizing God, okay? Any questions about that before we move on to the next one? We're running through them kind of quickly, so if you have a question, don't hesitate, okay? The next one is zoomorphism. This is ascribing animal characteristics to God, okay? describing animal characteristics to God. So look at, uh, listen out for this, Psalm 91.4. He will cover you with his pinions, and under his wings you will find refuge. His faithfulness is a shield and buckler. So what are the animal characteristics described to God in that verse? Pinions and wings. Pinions are, I think, like the feathers of the bird, right? Um, so does God literally have wings? No, it's just describing. It's the picture of an animal bringing its young, protecting with their wings. Okay, it's used as a picture for us to understand God's protection. And then it even uses another descriptor of God. He's a shield and buckler. Okay, so we can see that that uh, that metaphor there. Okay, a couple more euphemism. This is the substitution of an inoffensive word for a more offensive one. Okay. So see if you catch it here. What is the word being replaced uh, that's less offensive than the original word? Luke eight fifty two. And all were weeping and mourning for her, but he said, "Do not weep, for she is not dead, but sleeping." So what's the substitution for of it? What what's the more or the less offensive word? Sleeping, right, to describe death. There's other passages that talk to. Um, you know, Paul, and I think it's maybe First Thessalonians, says we will not all sleep, and he's not talking about actually sleeping, but death. It's a little bit of a way of softening the blow, um, given that imagery of sleep, okay? The next one is hyperbole. This is a deliberate exaggeration used to communicate a point. Deliberate exaggeration used to communicate a point. Um, Matthew eighteen nine. all right? If your eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. It's better for you to enter life with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into the hell of fire. Okay, So what's the hyperbole there? Yeah, ter- I mean, I don't think Jesus is, although there is some truth to it would be better to literally pull your eye out if it's causing you to sin, um, but I don't think that's, I don't think Jesus is a proponent of self-inforcing harm in that way right it's more of a he's getting the point across to, to kill that sin in your life no matter what right to turn away to whatever's causing you to stumble abandon it because apart from that you could be thrown into hell and that would be way worse so it's a way of again hyperbolically expressing uh those 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 emotions and what what the author's trying to communicate any questions about that All right, the next one is uh, one of my favorites, um, sarcasm, all right? An indirect form of a ridicule expressed as a compliment. So believe it or not, there's sarcasm throughout Scripture. In a couple places, I gave two examples because this is probably one of my favorites. The first one's Job twelve one through 4, okay? So here we see Job using sarcasm. So see if you can catch what's the phrase Job uses that's, that's sarcastic, okay? This is when... Of course, just the context, Job has suffered incredible loss. His friends have come to him to say, you're in sin. That's why God's doing this to you. You know, they're all just accusing him of sin. And so here's one of his responses to his friends. It says, then Job answered and said, no doubt you are the people and wisdom will die with you. But I have understanding as well as you. I'm not inferior to you. Who does not know such things as these? I'm a laughing stock to my friends. I who called to God and He answered me. A just and blameless man am a laughing stock. So, what's the sarcastic phrase or phrases you captured in there? Yes, right. You guys are the people of God, right? Uh, wi- wisdom will die with you. Just basically saying you guys are just peak. You guys are so wise. You're so, and he's being sarcastic about it, right? As though you know, they're right and he's wrong. But then he's, then he's using that sarcasm to say, I've got wisdom too and to, to defend himself, okay? So we might expect sarcasm with someone like Job, but do you realize God uses sarcasm as well in Job 38, 5? Again, the context throughout the book of Job, he's lost uh, everything. His friends are accusing him that... Uh, He's sinned against God, and he's being judged for that. He's defended himself, and he's even really become sort of uh, angry or questioning of God uh, because of his loss. And he even says at some point in the book of Job, when I see God, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to put him on the trial. I'm going to ask him why he's doing this because it's not because of sin. Well, what happens when God finally comes on the scene, he's the one asking the questions, and Job's the one silent and listening. And so in Job thirty-eight five, which I believe this is part of, we're... It works out this way sometimes. I think we're doing part of this for our call to worship today. But here's God responding to Job and catch the sarcasm here. Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me, if you have understanding, who determined its measurements? Surely you know, or who stretched the line upon it? So what was the main phrase we see is sarcasm there as God questions Job. Surely you know, right? You know everything. Right, where was where was I when I laid the foundations of? Where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? Where, you know, where were you when all this happened? You know, you seem to know everything, right? It's a sarcasm. So, Job used that against his friends to say, "Well, you guys seem so wise," but he's doing it sarcastically, and God does that to him. And there's actually, I think, another verse there in Job 38 where we see that sarcasm again. Um, so, what are these verses? What is this sarcasm seeking to communicate? Okay, yeah, it's a humbling thing. You know, you profess to be wise, and yet let me question your wisdom. Uh, let me use this sarcasm to show you just how foolish you really are, okay? And is there a wrong way to use sarcasm today, of course? Um, but we want to be careful to notice that in Scripture when it's used. It's a very powerful uh, figure of speech here, okay? The last one, before we talk about some forms of parallelism, uh, is rhetorical question. Okay? Rhetorical question. This is the use of a question to make a statement where a response is never intended. And we could read really all of Job 38, 39, 40, and I think 41 are all God asking basically rhetorical questions that Job never answers, that were really never intended to answer because Job couldn't answer them. Um, but here's an example of Job 38 two. Who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? Okay? And then he goes on to question things. So he's not asking specifically for Job to answer. It's a rhetorical question. And you see this line of questioning, like I said, throughout those chapters, where he's like, where were you when this happened? And where were you in this? And can you do this? And Job's just silent. And at the end, he's just, you're right, God, I'm wrong. I'm repenting, and, and you're, you're amazing. So, hmm Yeah, who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? Yeah, there's some sarcasm, I think, there. Right, right. So, yeah, absolutely. And this is why we want to, part of trying to understand these various figures of speech is so we'll be able to identify them. So as we come to Scripture, we're not just going to gloss over them, we're going to stop and pause and say, oh, this looks like a figure of speech. And and like you said, there may be per- verses, there may be even a single phrase where there's a couple types of figures of speech and that helps us to observe that so we can understand what the author's trying to communicate. Joseph. Yeah. Right. They couldn't give an answer. Yeah. That's a good example as well. And we see these rhetorical questions really throughout Scripture. I think we even talked about it last week with, um, with Romans 6, where he says, What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? And then he answers himself, God forbid. May it never happen. Okay. So these are, these are very uh, prevalent throughout Scripture. Okay. So those are the 12 figures of speech to be aware of as we're observing. Scripture, the last little bit I want to touch on is parallelism, and we're going to look at, very quickly, five uh, forms of parallelism. And parallelism is the practice of balancing lines of poetry through a correspondence of words or ideas. Okay, so these are typically found uh, in poetic sections of Scripture. We're going to look at one example that's um, in more of a prophetic uh, passage, but these are something especially in poetry to be aware of, okay? Parallelism. So um, let me read a quick quote about, uh, from the book about parallelism. It says, essentially, both lines are working together to communicate a single, contextually unified idea. So what we're going to see is two lines of poetry. They're both seeking to communicate the same idea, so they're parallel in that way, but sometimes there's different forms of this parallelism to communicate that idea, Okay. This is the essence of parallelism. The second line isn't saying anything that wasn't essentially stated in the first. In all cases of parallelism, the second line corresponds to the first. In some cases, such as this one, the first line could even act independently without the second line. But the point is that the two lines do function together. Through the technique of parallelism, the second line enhances the first line, heightening the effect, resulting in a one-two punch, and in some cases providing a literary knockout blow such is the impact of parallelism in Scripture. And thus, it's critical that attentive readers see parallelism in the text and ultimately understand its function in enhancing and heightening the message of Scripture. So again, these ideas could be stated in one line, but because they're stated in a parallel way, you're going to see it's kind of a one-two punch. It just enhances or emphasizes the point uh, being brought across. And as we look at examples this will be made a little bit more clear, okay? So the first type is what we call synonymous parallelism. This is the thought in each line corresponds by similarity, okay? So there are going to be two lines in poetry, and they're both essentially saying the exact same thing. They're, they're synonymous, okay? The example is Psalm 19, 1 through 2, okay? So um, i tell you what, when I read it, because it, th- these would be great if you want to turn to your book, Bible Um, A lot of times in poetic books of the Bible, they're not laid out in a paragraph form, they're laid out line by line. So it might be easier to visualize if you want to turn to these, but I'll, I'll make a reference when we move from the first line to the second line, okay? So you can, if you're not looking at it, you can catch it, okay? So the first line, Psalm 19, 1 through 2, the heavens declare the sky above, that's line one, line two, uh... Or sorry, the heavens declare the glory of God, line one, and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. You see the parallelism there? The heavens declare glory of God. The sky proclaims handiwork. It's basically saying the same thing, but using a little bit of a different way to enhance it. Actually, the next verse does the same thing. Day to day pours out speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. Okay, so it's essentially saying the same thing. Day to day pours speech, night reveals knowledge. Basically saying all of creation is revealing to us that God is a powerful creator, okay? So it's a poetic way of just emphasizing and enhancing what's being communicated, okay? Any questions about that type of parallelism? You see just the effect it can have of just enhancing what's being communicated. The next one is the opposite. It's called antithetical parallelism. This is the thoughts in each line correspond by contrast. So you're going to have one line, and then the next line is going to be contrasted. so be a little different. And usually, you're going to see the conjunction, but um, this is, of course, very common throughout the book of Proverbs. What's the main, we talked about this last week, what's the main contrast throughout the book of Proverbs? Wisdom and folly, or the wise man and the foolish. And so you're going to see a lot of these, well, the wise are this, but the fools are this. And they're going to be very similar, but they're contrasted, okay? It's an example it's Proverbs 15, one. A soft answer turns away wrath, but harsh words stir up anger. Okay? So soft answer, what does it do? Turns away wrath. Harsh words, which is the opposite of a soft answer, stirs up anger. So you see those two contrasted antithetical, uh, this antithetical parallelism that exists there. And we could look at so many examples in Proverbs of the wise man is this, but the foolish man is this showing the contrast in a parallel way, okay? The next one is called synthetic parallelism, okay? The first line is developed and enriched by the corresponding second line. So this is not going to be so much restating in different words what was said, but it's going to be more of an enhancing of what was said, okay? The example is Proverbs 24, verse 4. The sluggard does not plow in the autumn. He will seek at harvest and have nothing. So it's, again, enhancing that idea of that when uh, the sluggard's not plowing, he's not going out and working the fields, and so then when harvest time comes around, he has nothing, okay? So it's enhancing that first line. The next one is called emblematic parallelism. I think I spelled that wrong. I think it's supposed to be emblematic with a B and not emblematic uh, as it has on the screen. Um. This is the second line reveals the referent of the metaphor used in the first line, okay? The second line reveals the referent of the metaphor. So this is going to use the words is and like, and and those are the clues, basically, to this type of parallelism, is and like, okay? Um, Proverbs 11.22, and this may be different in some versions because uh, I know the example they gave in the book put the first or the second line first, had them switched around, but the ESV does it a little differently, so... The ESV says, "Like gold in a pig's snout is a beautiful woman without discretion." If we flipped it around, it would be again. the The second line is that metaphor of a gold ring in a pig's snout, and the first one is the first line is that picture of a beautiful woman. So, a beautiful woman without discretion is like a ring in a a gold ring in a pig's snout. Okay, so you see that parallelism, but it's a metaphor. Um, Disgr- explaining how the woman's discretion, lack of discretion, um, what it's like. It's a metaphor of that, okay? The last one is climactic parallelism, okay? This is a portion of the first line is used in the second line, and the second line adds to it. So this is going to be, um, again, climactic. It's going to be building. So there's going to be the form of parallelism where it's it's building. It's reiterating, but it's building upon it. And like you see there on the screen there, these are very, uh, and it's supposed to say these are common in prophetic oracles, okay? These are very common in prophetic oracles where God's trying to really get the point across that judgment's coming or this is what's going to happen. So the example is Amos 3.15. I will strike the winter house along with the summer house, and the houses of ivory shall perish, and the great houses shall come to an end, declares the Lord. So you can see that climax that's uh, existing throughout that. So Winter houses are gone, summer houses, houses of ivory, great houses. So it's building just to communicate judgment that's coming, right? If they don't turn from their sin. All right. Um, Any questions about these? Either parallelism or figures of speech. I know it's been a lot of information. We've just walked through it. These are more meant to help you as you read Scripture to identify these figures of speech. Even if you're not sure exactly what category they fit under, At least being familiar with, okay, that's what's seeking to be communicated. Like I said, sometimes we read scripture and we're so used to figures of speech, we just read right over them and don't see the significance of them. So as we're in this observation stage of just reading the word, uh, laying everything out on the table, these are good things to be observant of so that as we move to that interpretation stage, we can start to maybe dive in a little deeper to what is that figure of speech seeking to communicate, okay? Okay. So these are not exhaustive either. There may be other literary features, figures of speech, parallelism that's not specifically laid out in the book. And then uh, they give an example of a few additional items to look for may may include word lists, pairings, prepositions, pronouns, cause and effect, and imperatives. So there's many more. This is not exhaustive, but the key is as you're studying, as you're reading something, Stop and say, well, what what is that? Why is it said that way? And what is the author trying to communicate? And you can set it aside so that when you move to that next step, now I'm going to study exactly what, what is being communicated there. Okay?